Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help you things understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleep but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the pile looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the kitchen five minutes and you're about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you die for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're stuck at trying to reach, huh? But after him who's able to possess your father's by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now, upon this, this was prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. Yeah, it's taken a few years to pull it all together, but 
um, as you know, as each step in the process went on, I I was encouraged by the response that I got to people I shared the information with, and um, the the reason I wrote the book was one of my uh, several of my students uh, when I when I taught the content to adult lifelong learning classes uh, here in Southwest Ohio, several of them said, "You've given me hope." that there's a way out of this. So um, I guess that's what we're going to talk about is, is what is, what, what kind of hope is there and what do we have to do to realize that hope? Well, absolutely. Uh, uh, can I call you Robert? Yes, please do. Okay, well, Robert, before we get off into the meat of that stuff, man, I'm a big kid, man. Tell me about the submarine part, man. I am so fascinated <laughs> by that. <laughs> um, well, I was I was a kid when I was doing it. I I was you know 23 years old when I walked on board the nuclear submarine after a, a year and three months of training. Um, in both nuclear power and uh, and submarine operations, and uh, we went pretty much immediately to uh, a six month deployment to the Western Pacific from Hawaii, and and uh, we had three special operations missions in in the summer of 1972, and I was awarded the the Expeditionary Medal, which is for Cold War Special Operations Patrols, and the Vietnam Service Medal for a Special Operations Patrol that we did within the Vietnam War Zone during 1972. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, I, I think I was well prepared after four years at the Naval Academy. Um, my dad was the commanding officer of a submarine back in the uh, late 50s. So uh, I think I knew a lot about what I was getting uh, into. Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed a lot of what I did. Uh, a lot of it was exciting. A lot of it was more dangerous than I had expected. Um, but uh, I learned over over six years that you know uh, a it wasn't necessary for me to serve longer than that to protect the country. The country was going to be fine. Uh, the Soviet Union was about coming to an end, and um, and and I I looked for other other uh, roles to play. Um, in life, so I, I left the service after six years, but um, really, really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to contribute to those roles and missions that I was given during that time. Well, that's definitely something that everybody don't get to experience. You know, a lot of us, you know, we get to see about, uh, you know, nuclear attack submarines, you know, through Google or, you know, television shows. But to, to actually have ser served on one a as a youngster, just the whole mechanics of the submarine on high functions and stuff is all that's exciting for me. But uh, have you have you watched uh, the Hunt for Red October movie? I've watched all of them. <laughs> yeah. I've watched that one about twenty well, times. Yeah the uh, the 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 things that they demonstrated in the movie about the USS Dallas, the fast attack submarine um, that actually found Red October. Um, all of that was pretty realistic. Um, there was a lot of it that was very realistic, um, except the fact that the CEO of a real submarine would never leave the submarine. And, and go ride the Red October. He would have sent the executive officer. <laughs> right. But other than yeah, that, was, uh, you know, it was very, very realistic. Yeah, that was definitely exciting. And I see for the fact that, you know, you've lived in a lot of countries and been to a lot of places. 
um, I can kind of see what kind of brought you full circle uh, to, to, to where you are today. And one thing um, jumped out at me, uh, you know, before I get to the questions and stuff, uh, that you consider yourself a, a non-aligned independent voter. And uh, right. I, was just telling some fr- I was just telling my friends not long ago, actually last week, I was telling them next time go around, I don't know, you know, where I'm going to land on this whole thing. And I don't know if you noticed in the title, I called them politricians. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, that's how I see a lot of politicians now. They're really politricians because they all got games, and you just need to figure out which one they're playing today. Well, I think that's part of our problem, isn't it? That, that um, the politicians wouldn't be wouldn't be politicians if they were just there to serve the country. You know, kind of the way the crew I served with on the nuclear submarine was there to serve the country. Um, they just have so many other influences. I I think probably a lot of them uh, Lamont go get elected to Congress with very good intentions about I'm going to be the person to, you know, not succumb to all the influences that are there and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to serve the country. And then the system that they operate in is, is, is the problem. I don't think the problem is, you know, necessarily the people. I think it's people in in a bad system, and if if we we can't solve it by changing the people, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether Democrats are in control or Republicans are in control. Um, Let me ask you a question: what, it, what 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 do you feel like honesty and integrity come in in that scenario? Yeah, it they come in near the bottom because what <laughs> comes in at the top. What comes in at the top is I gotta I gotta uh, I gotta get reelected. I don't have a career if I don't get reelected. So if I want to have a career in this in this uh, very attractive lifestyle, um, where most of the people that enter are upper middle class and almost everybody that leaves is upper multimillionaire. Uh, I don't think that happens on $175,000 a year in salary. Um, So there's money influences, there's partisanship, uh, and then there's all the things that influence whether I can win my next election or not. And somewhere down the list is serving the country, honesty, integrity, um, and and some of those – you know, values that we kind of expect people from, you know, when we're in high school and we read the Constitution and the the Declaration of Independence and so forth, that's what we think our 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 uh, elected officials are guided by. And I've just found in my research over the past few years that that I don't think that's true anymore. I believe you. That's very interesting. So what caused you, or should I say, how did you develop the idea and the content for your book? I mean, is this through life experiences or um, just paying attention to your surroundings? No, it's mostly through life experience. Um, I have a degree in systems engineering where, you know, you, you are trained to analyze the operation of systems. And, you know, are they meeting the goals that, that, and the purposes that they were, that they were established to meet? And if not, how do you fix it? And I used that when I was at Procter & Gamble quite successfully. I turned around several large businesses that were either declining or hadn't grown in almost a decade and, um, and was able to, to change the system within which we were operating. Um, and, and a lot of it is, is stuff I also learned in the Navy through how do you get a team to, to work together towards a common goal, um, even though 
everybody may agree with the purpose, but not everybody's going to agree with the with the actions that you you uh, you recommend. So you have to you have to learn to listen a lot. When I when I taught leadership at the University of Cincinnati, I used to say, if you stop listening, you stop leading. And and um, listening skills are not taught in high school. They're not, you know, you can't, you can teach, you can get English communication, English reading, English writing, spelling, um, speaking, but you can't, you can't take a course in listening. And I think without skills in that area, we have, we have what we have. We have people who, you know, uh, are are self motivated by their own interests and they don't really listen or know how to accommodate what they want to do with what others want to do. And and that's kind of the basic business of governing, I think. So I used that and I looked at I looked at Congress and I looked at governing processes. Um you know, kind of the way I'd look at a business that wasn't operating the way it should. And that's where the idea for the changes came from, was looking at once I identified what I think are the causes, which I think are, you know, uh, an interest in being reelected, preserving my career, an interest in pleasing the party, the party leaders, the party base, and the major donors, when I need to do all three of those things in order to have a career, um, then I looked at, well, what are, the, what are the parts of how Congress and the government operate that could be affected if we change those three factors? And, and what would need to happen to change those three factors? And, and that's when I came across this uh, sentence in the Constitution that says uh, uh, each member of each House of Congress shall make its own rules for how it operates. And that really set me back because I, I said, I, I don't know, I thought maybe the Constitution would, would state how the founders thought our government should govern. But in fact, it doesn't. It's a, it's a document about the structure of government, the, the three parts and how they relate to each other and checks and balances and, and rule of law. But it doesn't tell you how to govern. It's, it says specifically, the Senate, House, you make up the rules for how to govern. And I think the rules over the past several decades especially have just been made uh, to favor the incumbent members and and their party and their donors and not to favor the country. So that's why I think you have 70, 75% of the people say today we're on the wrong track. Uh, they agree that our, our, our government is broken, uh, that it can't solve problems. And I, I read a book the other day that, that actually said, when you think about it, the government is not really broken. It's fixed. It's fixed, all right, but not for us. <laughs> I can kind of agree with that. And I have another uh, uh, one of my producer friends. He can he does not consider this as a government anyway. He considers it a bad corporation. <laughs> well, it, it's certainly a bad public corporation. Um, but yeah, so you, you look at that and you say, myself. "I'm sorry." No, he was just saying that that it's not conducted and ran like a government. Well, I it'd be interesting. I understand you have listeners from around the world, so I'd be interested to to see what other people in other countries that live under other systems, you know, think about their government. Um, but, you know, w one of the things that Biden has talked about is uh, we have to 
we have to make sure that democracy and capitalism work for the good of the country um, or it's going to give way to authoritarianism in order just to get something done. And, uh, you know, I think you see that happening in Turkey and some other countries. Um, but, uh, you know, what we've gone through the past six months with with passing some of these major pieces of legislation doesn't doesn't look like a government that's working very well, does it? No. Uh, especially with all this uh, uh, infighting, it's it's, uh, it's, it's a, like a dysfunctional team. I mean, how could you expect to win or get anything accomplished if you're too busy fighting with each other and not dealing with the problems at hand? Absolutely. So how do you, what do you have to change to get people in Congress who come with the main purpose of serving the country unselfishly. We get, well, you know, you we have about some, a million. You, you hit on some couple of things, a couple of ideas that jumped out at, at, at me, Robert. Uh, one is to get a big broom and, and sweep out the room and, 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 and limit the times and office term limits. Right. It, you know, as I started to think about that, Lamont, the first thing I thought about was, well, how many terms would we limit it to? You know, two, three, four? I think if you ask a group of ten people, you probably get eight different answers. Um, <laughs> but, but again, right. when I thought about the purpose, what's the purpose of term limits? The purpose of term limits is just not to sweep the house every six or eight or ten years. I thought the purpose was to get people who would put the country first and not their own self-interest. So the more I thought about it, uh, and I had somebody suggest this in a class, they said, well, the only way that's going to happen is if people come to serve who, keep, who don't run for re-election. They come to serve one term. They're going to give um, four or six years uh, out of their life to serve the country, and then they're going to go back to whatever their life was before. And we get, you know, we get, what, thousands, tens of thousands of people to volunteer to be in the military each year, to be firefighters, to be EMTs, to be policemen, to serve the country. Why can't we get you know, a, a hundred or two hundred people to volunteer to to serve the country in Congress for four or six years. Yeah, I think that can happen. Uh, I think if we can get everybody on the same page, uh, that could happen. And, and like your associate uh, suggested, uh, to to seek out those that want to come in uh, for one term. And I think that's a good thing. I think the other part of that is to uh, uh, limit that term, because like what you mentioned earlier, uh, if you limit the term, when you know that there's a system that already has a virus built into the system, you get them out of there before the virus can really take effect. Right. That, that's, that's, uh, that's part of it. The very practical thing was, uh, you know how many days, the uh, Congress is in session on average over the past 20 years out of 365? I'd be surprised if they do 120 days. Well, they do 145. Oh, um, close. You were very close. But, you know, and the interesting thing is because they're running for re-election while they're in Congress, they only spend about uh, they, they spend up to thirty to forty percent of those days running for re-election, trying to drum up votes and raise funds. So they're not even governing for a third, you know, or to a fourth of the time that they're in uh, that they're in that they're in Washington. 
So is it any wonder that we can't, we, we don't get, you know, all the smart people that come? We don't get their, the power of their, their thinking against the major problems and they can get very little done when they're in Washington? It's crazy. I just, I just know I want to, I just want a yacht like mansions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and he's not one of the wealthier ones. <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think that would help a lot. And the other things that are that are in the list of, of what I call the citizen rules um, that would replace the rules that Congress has made for themselves with rules that we, the citizens, want you know, that's how we want to be governed. We make the rules, not them. That uh, that you can do a lot to minimize um, the role of party loyalty and and certainly a lot you can do to minimize the imp- impact of money uh, in politics. And you do all three of those things, and I think you get a very different government. Well, I guess we need to figure out how we can make that happen, huh? I guess we got to keep doing shows like this and keep waking up people. Well, the, in the book, I, I didn't just outline the changes um, because so many books have been written in the last four years where they outline problems and they don't really give give solutions. And if I just gave you a list of changes without thinking through how could we implement them? Um, I don't think it would be all that valuable. So there's a roadmap in the book of how a citizen-led effort could bypass Congress and and get these changes instituted in the Constitution so that the Supreme Court would have to support them and the laws would have to be written um, in accordance with them. And if they're not in the Constitution, I don't think they'll have the same power. <laughs> so the citizens' rules, that's, that's available for everybody to study? Yes, sir. They're, they're listed in the book, and um, I... I uh, I believe in the in the in the uh, communication of tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. All right. So that's I, that's how I I kind of followed that when I wrote the book. So in the beginning, there's the overview of what the changes are, and then there's chapters discussing the details, um, chapters discussing the benefits and the risks the pros and the cons, so that people can make up their mind. Um, I don't just have to take my word for it. And then at the end, there's a summary and and a roadmap that says, if you like what you read, then here's how we get it done. And I see you, you said you have several new rules defining the legislative process. Yes. Um, so there's there's one rule that talks about uh, how do we make laws, and the other one is how do we budget taxes, how do we do taxing and spending. I did that as, as kind of a, a separate thing. But some of the things in the legislative process um, was, did you know right now that there are two people in all of Congress and all of the government that control what laws come before Congress to even be considered? The Speaker of the House, Speaker of the House, if they disagree with a law coming to even be debated or discussed, it doesn't get to the floor. And if and if the majority party leader in the Senate doesn't agree with it, it doesn't come to the floor. So you could have. You could have in the House where there's 465 members or 435 members, you could have 200 members 
say, we want this bill to be debated. We want to get a vote. We want to discuss it. We want to consider it. One person says no and never sees the light well, of how does, how did How do they, uh, Robert, how do they get so much power? Because they've been there for 50 years? No, because they go to the the leadership, and the leadership says, okay, I agree with that. And the people in leadership have generally been there a long period of time. But uh, so what I wrote as a rule was that any bill that was co-signed by just 5% of the members in a chamber had to come to the floor for debate and a vote within 20 session days. So I took away that power that the uh, incumbent members have given to those leaders. So they don't have that power anymore. The other thing that where, where good bills go to die is in committees, um, where, again, the, the committee chairman has all the power. Um, so in this process, the, there's time in 20 session days for a bill to come to committee and for them to consider it and hold hearings, but they can't delay it more than that. And then how many times have you heard that a 2,000-page bill was was uh, sent to the floor um, at, at 10 o'clock in the morning and they voted on it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? And it, the only people that had seen it had been the party leaders and the committee. So, how do how do other people, you know, get to get a chance to understand what's in it, and uh, before they vote on it? Um, one of the speakers famously said some years ago, "Well, we have to vote on it first, and then we can figure out what's in it." That doesn't sound like a recipe for good governing to me. So no, I changed that so, too. They want so, to be, it it, it, it to sounds be. like somebody is making rules for other people that they don't have to live by. They're making rules for their own benefit because yeah. a lot of those bills are are done for the favor of donors, or they they're done for the favors of one party's base voters. And no party has more than about 30 or 35 percent of the country in their base. So we basically get, you know, a lot of legislation that's put forth by uh, uh, donors and and for the goal of the people who are going to vote me in for re-election which, you know, neither one of those is serving the overall needs of the country. So the other thing I did was say once a bill comes to the floor, it cannot be voted on in less than three days or more than six. So you have to have time to read it, but you can't use time to read to delay action. But see, if 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 you have already put in term limits and people are not running for re-election, then they have 30 to 40% of the days in Congress that they can now spend on thinking about legislation, working with people across the aisle, talking to their constituents, um, collaborating. We don't have time for that today. And uh, and and just having uh, people serve one term and not run for re-election uh, gives people a lot more time to do what they were sent to Congress to do, which is govern. Uh, and the final thing is there's no filibuster. Uh, I did away with that. It's majority vote in both houses, both houses of Congress. But um, 10% of the positive vote has to be from the minority parties. 
So the other danger I see in the way we govern is with one party having no more than 35% of, uh, of, the, of the citizens behind it, in our very diverse, wonderfully diverse country, you need both parties collaborating together. You need people who, who represent rural and who represent urban, who represent different religions, ethnicities, and, and different life experiences. And if you have one party making the laws, you generally get laws that don't work for the whole country. So there's no filibuster. There's no 60 votes. But you got to have 10% of the 51%. Um, so that's, you know, 5% to 6% has to come from people who are in the uh, minority party. Otherwise, you can't pass it. So no one party legislating. And if you think, can you think of a, of a government in history that was, that was a single party majority um, where they didn't have to consider the minority, where things worked out great for the citizens? I think the one problem that I have, Robert, that you might can help me out with, and it's kind of like uh, very simple if you think about it, but I always say the people that created the game also made the rules. And right. I don't, I don't, I just don't see them willingly handing over the power because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, after it's all said and done, this is all about power. Oh, absolutely. And they're not going to. Right. So the roadmap. So, uh, so the rules that the you have. Which I, which, yeah, what I want you to do, too, uh, if you don't mind, for the listeners who just joined us, I want you to, you know, give us uh, your 16 uh, citizen rules. But I always think that, you know what I mean? I always say that these people that, that created the situation that's running our, our country, um, they're not willingly going to do that, uh, even limit their terms. And, you know, I see that's the fight going forward. And um, I know you don't have all the answers, and I know you have great really? suggestions. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. There's two, only two ways to change the Constitution. And if, if these aren't in the Constitution, they don't have any, any value. Um, uh, one way is to have Congress propose the changes in amendments. And as you said, that's not going to happen. The other way is for citizens to petition the state legislatures to ask Congress to call a constitutional convention limited to considering these changes as amendments to the Constitution. And you have citizen representatives to the Constitutional Convention, and they meet and discuss the, the, the amendments that would put these 16 changes into place, 16 rules, and they vote up or down. They can't change, they can't delete, they can't add. Um, the only thing they can do is say, yes, we want these changes put into place, or no, we don't. And if they say yes, um, and, um, then it goes back to the states to ratify, and if 38 states uh, ratify it, um, then it becomes part of the Constitution, and Congress has no say. They are powerless to do anything as long as the citizens in every state lobby the state governments, the legislatures in the states, to call the Constitutional Convention and ratify the amendments. And by the so way, you, there, are about, there are about 20 states just, where the citizens, can, the citizens could put, these, could put this law right on the ballot uh, and bypass the state legislators. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, what do you think? 
what do you think it would take to uh, get these people on their horses? Well, I think it would take um, at least 100,000 people in every one of the 50 states to be committed to making this happen. So that's 5 million people. Um, but that's one of the steps in the roadmap is to find out if there are at least 100,000 people in each state, 5 million people across the U.S., who, who would be willing to um, contribute to the effort in their state to get, to get the Constitutional Convention called and to ratify the amendments? Well, I definitely, I definitely wanted you to put that out there to give people food for thought, you know, because we already know one way is not going to work, but there's always another right. way in the house, even if it's not through the front door, back door, maybe you can climb through a window. But uh, it it's usually a way to get something done. That's where the hope is, though, isn't it, that, that we, yeah. we aren't powerless. In this country, we are still... We are still a, a, a government that can serve um, at the, with the consent of the governed. All we have to do is want it badly enough. And there's enough of it that want to see this change. And I certainly got the sense from teaching this content to over 250 people in five counties here in our area that Ninety percent of the people want to change. They don't like they don't like the path we're on. And if they and many of them don't believe that the current leaders are going to be the ones to change it. It's going to have to come from us, the people. So if you well, like, I'll give you a quick a quick summary of the rules. Right. Let me ask you this real quick, and then we'll do that. Do you think that's why – do you think it's a possibility uh, of why, you know, the government is feeding people so much misinformation so they won't look for situations like we're speaking of now? Well, uh, I don't know if they do it specifically for that, but I think they do it so that the people are misinformed and that they only get the information that benefits them. Um, they never talk about anything good from the other side. Um, they never talk, you know, a lot of people will, will run for election by saying, I'm going to work across the aisle to get things done. And then they get into office and they vote with their party and they vote against the other party. I mean, they root. You know, they, the the minority party roots for the majority party to fail. They don't they don't work together to to make things better or try to solve things. Um, you're so, not on yeah, my I team, think, so you look. You're not on my team, so I'm not going to root for you to win. Exactly, but aren't aren't we all on America's team? That's what I. <laughs> You know, that's, they that's forgot, I grew they up. forgot that part. They forgot that part, Robert. <laughs> they forgot that part. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'll just run through these quickly. If if you want to take uh, five minutes for it, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Okay. First one we talked about setting term limits, um, setting the the compensation, health, and retirement benefits for members of Congress and senior administration officials. Right now they make their own compensation, they make their own health plan, they have their own, they, they determine their retirement benefits. We take that away from them and we, we set in the rules. Second one is, we talked about, defining new rules for the legislative process to limit uh, partisanship and um, and uh, to confirm the primacy of our citizen rules in the Constitution over procedural rules enacted by Congress. The third one is to define the, the timing requirements for the Senate to vote on treaties and presidential appointments. So we can't, won't have... Um, uh, done what's been done in the past few years where one person 
Senate Majority Leader said, no, Mr. President, we're not voting on your nomination. Sorry. Um, they, they have 60 session days after an appointment um, to, uh, to ratify. Uh, I also limit the duration of acting presidential appointments. That was something that was kind of um, uh, taken advantage of in, in previous administrations where to go around the Senate approval process, they nominate people who might not get approved uh, as an acting appointment, and then they stay there for months and months. Uh, I also limited the absolute presidential power for reprieves and pardons. It's not one person deciding a presidential pardon or a reprieve. Uh, he recommends them and the Senate has to concur. Rule is to strengthen congressional oversight of uh, executive uh, implementation of the laws by strengthening the independence of inspector generals and key executive departments. So under the, this rule, the, uh, the president can't fire inspector generals uh, without getting Senate approval, can't fire people on the Joint Chiefs of Staff who might not obey his order, um, and, and can't fire the Judicial Department, the IRS, um, the FBI, the CIA, or the Intelligence Committee people who might not agree to do his bidding. The fifth rule is the rules for budgeting, taxing, and spending. There has to be a balanced budget. It has to be passed 10 days before the fiscal year starts. Programs that spend government money have to have goals. Uh, they have to be transparent about whether the goals are being reached before they spend the money again. The sixth rule prohibits Congress members from taking on paid lobbying roles after they serve in Congress or that they serve in the administration. Seventh, uh, prohibits Congress from exempting themselves from laws they enact on us, which happens way too often. Uh, rule number eight, changes the allocation and certification of electoral college votes in presidential elections from winner take all to a proportional basis based on the popular vote. The ninth rule limits the terms of Supreme Court justices and federal court judges to 10 years, but they can be renominated and re and reconfirmed for a, for a second or a third or a fourth ten year term um, if they're if they're doing a very good nonpartisan job. Rule number ten: ensuring fair and equitable access to registration and voting processes for all citizens and elections free from fraud. So this doesn't dictate how the state should run elections but it gives power to a committee of citizens to take a look at district maps, registration laws, voting practices, and say, this is not equitable across all of your citizens. There's some that stand in line for four hours and some for four minutes. You have to change that. The 11th is defining rules for campaign financing that limits the donation from a company, an organization, an individual, uh, a PAC, a political action committee, to the same number per year as an individual citizen. Number 12 is, de is defining rules for truthful messaging um, in political speech, campaign messaging, and so forth and limits the time of campaign advertising and messaging to one year. Provides an in, uh, Number 13, provides an independent council to oversee voting district alignments after the census. Uh, number 14, defines the rules for ethical behavior and limiting financial conflicts of interest. So this is where a person who 
files to be a candidate for federal office has to release their 10 years of tax returns in order to be a candidate. And somebody who's elected has to put all of their financial assets and business businesses, stocks and bonds, all that kind of stuff, has to go into a third-party blind trust uh, during the time that they're in office. It also says that all non-salary personal income for the president, vice president, senior elected uh, uh, officials, and, and members of the administration cannot receive any personal income um, during the time they're in office uh, except what we pay them. And any other income, investment returns, all that goes into the blind trust. Rule number 15, a nonpartisan judicial process for impeachment and definition of actions as impeachable offenses. If you watched any of the impeachments, you know that, that what action is an impeachable offense was left to a lot of judgment. So this would specify what they are. And it would take away the Senate's power to control the impeachment process. The Senate should be there only as jurors um, to do impartial justice, which is what they, what they pledged to do. Um, and then they don't do it. <laughs> so this would, this would make it more like a, 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 a court than a political process. And it would use the judicial processes rather than political processes. And the last one is establishing a program of required national service for all citizens between the ages of 18 and 29. So it's a two-year period. You can start it after, after you graduate from high school, or you can start it after you become a doctor, lawyer, or PhD. But you have to start it sometime and finish it before your 30th birthday. And that could be in the military. It could be as a teacher uh, in an underprivileged community. It could be as a, an EMT, a fireman, a policeman, uh, somebody who serves on nonprofit community service uh, organizations, um, people who run for office. Uh, so there's lots of ways to serve the country. Um, but everybody by the time they're 30, has to have spent two years serving other people. That's it. You know, I'm sitting over here thinking, Robert, you know you and I could never run for office. You know that, right? Well, I, I know. People have asked me, why don't you run for office? <laughs> you know, I, I say, you know, because well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm listening to the, your stuff, man, and I'm thinking, I'm like, Oh man, all these things is powerful, and I'm saying to myself, you know, he and I could never run for office because we would be a threat. <laughs> we, we would be a threat. No party would ever want to support us. And once we were inside, once we were inside, the rules would keep us from doing anything meaningful. So don't don't. It's not. It's a waste of time. Join me in making this happen. That's what we. That's well, what we have the power to do. And that's and that's just what we're doing. And as I'm thinking too, Robert, I'm definitely gonna invite you back to the show because you gave me a whole bunch of ideas uh, for a continuation of some of the stuff. And 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 I know our, our very talented elected officials are definitely gonna give us some more stuff to talk about with, without a, a question. Um, I, yeah, I got uh, something to talk about every day <laughs> the way things are going. But I, I'm once the book is launched, I'm going to start um, commenting once a week on something that happened in politics under the current rules that would not happen under the new rules. Just to just to keep it in the in the public attention. You might need to get you a couple security guards too, but I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was playing. I, I didn't say that. 
But I'm just telling you, boy, you know, I know you know, and I'm listening, but I know you know, boy, the people that create the game, boy, they're not trying to change no rules willingly. You know that. Oh, I I know. Listen, it was something we talked about uh, before I I went beyond just teaching it to 250 people over two years. You know, all the people that took the course, you know, they were all in favor of it, but you go out into the the national uh, platform and there's going to be about a third of it, a third of the people that aren't going to be in favor of it. Um, So, oh, yeah, uh, I was just reminded that uh, there's, on the back of the book, on the on the back of the book cover, there are some pretty impressive endorsements from uh, some pretty um, uh, well well placed people. Uh, so, example one is from uh, retired Admiral James Trevitas, who was the former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, and he was the former dean. Of the, of the Graduate School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And his comment starts, this is a book full of brilliant ideas for change. And then I also got a, a nice endorsement from John Pepper, who was the former CEO and chairman of the Procter & Gamble Company and the former chairman of the board of the Walt Disney Company. And, and uh, a third one came from a gentleman I, I met at at a group called the Kettering Foundation here in Ohio. Um, he's been the he's the president emeritus of a group called the National Issues Forum Institute, which seeks to conduct deliberative discussion forums across the country with people of different points of views and different parties coming to common ground. And he's also the former president of the University of Akron and the University of Auburn. So these are these these are not um, you know frivolous people. Down, they seem like they have a lot to bring to the table and stuff. Robert, we down to the last minute or two, but please tell our listeners where they can go get your book and how they can contact you for speaking engagements and so on. Okay. Um, my website should be up on no later than Tuesday, and it's at www.citizenrules.org. And and links to the book and uh, contact information for me will be on that. But they can also go directly to Amazon, and if they search in books for American Turning Point, they will see the book. And uh, if they click on the Lick Inside um, function, they will, they will see that they can read the, the preface, the introduction, and the first full chapter. Um, and they can, they can order it uh, on Amazon. It won't ship until November 22nd, but uh, all the pre-orders that Amazon gets between now and then get counted towards the first week of shipments, which would help uh, to help the book achieve bestseller status, which is right. something I'm working for, you know, to get uh, to get broad attention after after launches. Well, it sounds good, man, and we're definitely going to do our part on this end to uh, make sure our listeners um, support. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we definitely don't want you to come back um, and pay us another visit, man, so we can keep this going on, man. We need to continue to uh, wake up as many people as we can. Well, I thank you very much for having me. Um, I've enjoyed speaking with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share some of the details. We certainly appreciate you. And and for you listeners that joined us late and may have missed some portions of the show, the show will be available worldwide in a couple of minutes. So uh, as I like to say, there's no excuse for you not to hear the show. Uh, you can ask your neighbor across the street. You could ask your milkman. You could ask the guy down at the corner at the gas station pumping gas. Somebody will be able to tell you 
where you can hear the show, so it's not no excuse. Um, we definitely need to uh, tune in and pay attention to what's going on in this world in which we live, because if we don't make changes now, when will we, how will we? So again, uh, so again, I want to thank you so, so very much for joining us, man. I enjoyed you tremendously, and uh, continue to be safe out there and continue to spread the good message. Thank you very much. All right. Be safe, sir. We'll be back, everybody, next week, same time, 2.30 PST. This is Canna Player Play, and you know we try to bring people on top of their game to affect changes all around the world. And hopefully you got something positive out of the show. And, again, we'll see you next week right here, same time. Be safe. <laughs>